I'm Elizabeth Bowman, and this is the Opera Glasses Podcast. Today, I have a very special episode for you that features three guests, all to do with the world premiere of a new opera flowing with hope and heartbreak. The opera, Of the Sea, is co-produced by the Obsidian Theatre Group and Tapestry Opera in partnership with T.O. Live. Of the Sea is brought to life by an incredibly diverse team of creatives. The work is written by up-and-coming Black playwright Kanika Ambrose and composed by Métis and French-Canadian composer Ian Cusson, both of whom are here today. Also joining this conversation is American baritone Jarrell Williams, who stars in the production. So let's get to it. All right, welcome to the Opera Glasses podcast. And I guess the first question is, how did this project come together? Well, interestingly enough, uh, Tapestry Opera does fairly regularly this composer librettist lab where they it's sort of an incubator for librettists and composers to meet and to write short pieces. And uh, one of one of these was held in 2018. And I was one of four composers in it, and Kanika was one of uh, four librettists in the program. And the cool thing is that we we did this sort of pairing where each composer could work with each librettist and create a small seven-ish minute piece. And uh, Kanika and I got paired. We were the fourth pairing of the four pairings. And, you know, we had spent about a week and a half writing works with other people. And I think that we were pretty exhausted at that point. And um, and what little work emerged from from that that pairing was this little piece called "Of the Sea," uh, which was a, a sort of a snapshot into the lives of a few people um, that were living in this wonderful, extraordinary world. And this birthed a little short work that that then got commissioned by Tapestry Opera in in uh, collaboration with. Um, with Obsidian Theater and has really become the piece that we're that we're presenting here. Well, the original prompt in Lib Lab for the piece was we were to create a virtual a VR opera, um, which we were both like, "What does that mean?" and nobody knew. So we went to a VR arcade and we played the most basic of the games because we had no skills, and it was kind of like this falling like it was like a nebula nebulous place we weren't sure if it was sea like water or air um but it was kind of blue and there might have been some coral we weren't sure but we were it felt like we were falling so for me that made me think of uh some caribbean folklore um one was about the laja bless and that we're still like lead people off cliffs <laughs> so there's lots of stories about people falling and or being suspended in the air so it's like we could create something in the air or we could create something in the sea which is another place where there's a lot of folklore exists um and so that was what ignited the spark of what became of the sea um and then when we were exploring creating a larger piece um a few things stuck with the characters that we created um I was really drawn to them and, and expanding their larger stories. And in that, there was the story of a baby um, who we were particularly both drawn to and um, has stayed with the piece to this day. And I'm curious, how many times has this piece been workshopped before you come to this point? 
we we were lucky enough to have a, a few workshops. There was a libretto read through, um, or at least a couple of those, where we got to read through an earlier draft and then a more complete draft of the libretto. And then we had one music workshop uh, in August of twenty two of twenty twenty two, where we got to sing through the whole piece as it existed, and then that became a like a jumping off ground for Kanika and I to do a little bit more work, fix a few things, tighten a few things. Um, and that really led us into the rehearsal period uh, for the for the first production. And Jarrell, when did you get on board? So I'm going to say something that's really, really a curveball. Uh, in 2018, there was the announcement uh, that Kanika and Ian were performing this piece. Now, I just happened to be in the room because my wife was performing that evening. And uh, I knew Ian, but I did not know Kanika, but I heard wonderful things. So afterwards, I approached her, and we were chatting for about 30 minutes, not knowing anything about each other, but felt this incredible energy, and we were drawn to each other. And I said, oh, so you're a librettist and you're a playwright. I said, we're going to do something together. And, and I, like, left it alone. And, you know, I, at that point, I was still living in New York City before I moved here. Uh, and so, lo and behold, randomly... I get an email to come sing for this piece and you know, it included Ian and Kanika. And I thought, Oh, well, this is random. I, I, maybe this, I didn't have no clue that this was the same thing that we had discussed about their uh, commission back in 2018, did the audition. And I thought, okay, well, we'll see what happens. And I, right away, I was on board. It wasn't even a question of if or when it was like, yes, yes. And yes. Um, and since then, it's been an absolute pleasure to be a part of it because um, now with a newborn, um, it it takes my mental connection to the storyline even uh, further. It's another step of death, depth into uh, this story and death um, because there are many, many layers that I'm finding now as I'm going through the score that I didn't have the opportunity to do so this summer during the workshop even though I knew we were expecting my child was not here yet. So my mindset was she's not here now that she's here. It's like, Whoa, we start rehearsals next week. <laughs> so um, it's going to be a fascinating uh, hit the ground running process for, I think everyone in the room. When, when did you move to Toronto? I moved to Toronto on Christmas Eve of 2018. So two months to the day after I met Kanika, actually. Speaking of what you and your wife were, were expecting um, during that workshop, and I actually wrote the bulk of this while I was also pregnant. <laughs> so, there's lots of baby energy in this opera. And, wow. and I guess I have a bunch of kids too. And so, it, you know, and I think we talked about, <laughs> we, we haven't really talked about the story, but but really like it, the whole piece itself centers around Jarrell's character, Maduka, who is a father who has a baby and is in probably the most extreme uh, situation in terms of like conflict and tension that you could have, which is really trying to advocate for his, his baby in all the ways, you know, by both, taking her to this this 
frightening place under the under the water under the sea and then also trying to really advocate for her to have life again and to have life on on earth and in the sun and above the the surface of the water um and and the journey is really his to do that so we i guess yeah for the three of us it's really touched us all in a very personal way maybe for you Jarrell, the, the most recent uh but but yeah. yeah i think we've all held our children and the experience of being parents um, in the making of this piece in different ways. How many uh, children do you have, Ian? I have four. We had another child that we lost, actually, and um, and so th this story was also a special one for that because I was I was one of the first things I shared with with Kanika is is the passing of a child. Um, that had happened a couple of years before uh, before we started working on the piece and how that was a it was interesting because right as we were talking about what what we wanted to make for this VR opera, which is no longer a VR opera, I guess we should say, um, but in the Lib Lab, that, that kind of conversations around children became part of that in different ways, and and one of them was the the experience of of loss of a child. It's important for the audience uh, or people listening to hear hear the real story. Um, I always say honesty resonates. And a lot of times you hear people talking about putting together pieces and oftentimes it's PR talk and less about uh, the real story. So thank you for yeah. sharing, sharing the truth. And um, I'm sure it'll, it'll come out in, in the work. But yeah. Also too, um, during that lib lab, the first piece I created was, was about um, um, uh a father or a man who had just um, his wife had just miscarried and dealing with his own grief surrounding that. Um, so I had two kind of pieces about loss of, of, of children. Um, I was also, I was trying to conceive. It was a long journey for me. So that was all playing in my mind too, during the, uh, the creation of this piece. I now have a son who's two years old, but it was like three years of, <laughs> waiting for that guy the the act of making of making work and being able to in a strange way like process your own experience of life and that's your own experience of death as well um i think is is it's weirdly cathartic as as creators of, of work and th and that includes i think the creation of work as as like in jarell's case of bringing a work and a, and a character to life right um but I, this this piece has been uniquely special, I think, um, f for that that kind of mourning and celebrating and all of the pieces that come together surrounding life, especially life with regards to one's offspring and one's future generations. Um, I'm going to move over to Jarrell now, because as an opera singer, classical music. Uh, singer, you often work uh, with non-living composers. Uh, so this experience of uh, putting, creating a role, um, working with with obviously people you can interact with, I imagine that has a huge impact on your experience as well. You've touched on it a little bit, but I'm um, just what's what's the difference for you and the, the satisfaction of both experience. Uh, well, I want to say two points. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about Ian and Kanika, and then I'm going to talk about 
uh, my experience. First, uh, in Kanika, um, there is a clever mastery of melody and uh, word painting that they use um, that flow together effortlessly. And uh, Ian has this way uh, when he's composing to really drive the storyline of what the emotion of the piece is, which is really fascinating. It's very complex to do uh, because when you think of contemporary classical music, it's trash cans and ethereal sounds and things, but there is something that he brings, even if, if Ian were to use a trash can as an instrument, it would be beautiful because of the way he processes overtone series and the way he processes melodies. It's just a beautiful thing uh, for me as a performer to kind of latch onto because we kind of lost for me with this contemporary scope of not saying that contemporary music is, is terrible, but there's a scope that when an audience member leaves, what are they leaving with? It's this experience of, Oh, just loud noises versus, Oh, there, there was a melodic tone that I'm, I find myself humming when I'm leaving the theater and I want everyone to experience. And that is what he brings to the table. Kanika, uh, she puts pen to pad and she created this beautiful world that we're living in. It's so hauntingly real and magical. And uh, when we were workshopping the piece, I almost forgot that it was a workshop because it seems so real, um, you know, based on, on our own personal stories with children. And um, for me, whatever word, whenever the words came off the page, it was a testament to me for just great writing and storytelling. So it made it easy for me as a performer to latch on to and to really dig deep and, and enjoy the process because sometimes you get a, a script for play uh, or musical score and you look at it and you think, nope, this isn't going to go well. But you do it, you know, for the sake of argument, say, okay, maybe what can I bring to the piece? And then while you think that what you're bringing is great, the rest of the piece falls flat and it doesn't go anywhere. And that's the hard part with contemporary music. It's not about getting the first performance. It's the second and the third and the fourth and understanding that it's not just about presenting something for historical context. While this is that is to make sure that the legacy of the story lives longer than, than what we had originally intended for in the beginning. And so putting these two giants to me uh, in a room uh, with this unhinged mentality that anything on the table is possible. Um, what you get is a piece of theater that literally transcends like your imagery of what is possible. And I, I truly hope, and I, I believe that the audience is going to get that um, from the very first downbeat of the overture going into the very first scene, you are snapped right into this world. There is no time. It just happens right away. Um, this water music that just flows through the space. It's like, okay, we're here. And then you just live in that moment. And it's a beautiful thing because the whole purpose of going to theater is to press pause on life and to live through those five circles of the circle of fifth of emotions that we go through. Um, so when you leave, you feel like you've left with something and you've gained something to, to add to your life. Now, now that I've praised them, I'm going to praise myself. Humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> um, fortunately for me, I've had um, over a decade or so of working uh, with composer librettist teams back in my days in New York and in grad school uh, through the American Opera Project program called the Composers in the Voice. And um, what was fascinating about this program is that you had uh, six singers, six librettists, six composers, 
and we all performed every possible piece of music, whether it be opera, musical theater, jazz, gospel, etc. Then we heard the composer's writing, and then every month we would present a piece. And what that taught us, uh, both as singer, librettist, and uh, composer, was how to scope for each individual voice, because some people don't know how to do that. Um, and without the proper tools and the, the proper uh, response from the team that is that is uh, pushing for you to be successful in this field, you have to have an open mind and open ears. And some people are shut off to that because they want to go with what they think is right, which is fine. But when no one's picking up your scores off the shelf, you should probably go back to the drawing board. And that's not a knock. That is just a fact. Um, it is very, very uh, difficult to perform in general, but to have your works performed is even more difficult. Uh, I think so, especially in this land, in this time where uh, anyone can write a song and put it on YouTube and get a million views and then boom, you know, you're off. Uh, you have to have something with substance. And I, I will totally put this, I mean, just based off of the workshop and based off of my audition and based off of these two individuals that I'm working with, we have a great, director of Philip Aiken and, and, you know, he's historical in his own right. And, and just to be part of this team, I, I know that if I had to put a top three or five experience for myself, having not even experienced the first day of rehearsal, this is on there for me just because of the people involved, because you feel tolerated um, and ex you feel accepted, not tolerated. And my last note that I will say, and I think this is of vital importance, um, this is a black story uh, about uh, uh, this world that is fictional yet real. And there are tropes and there are parallels to yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And as a black singer, there is this idea that you cannot lead a production. That has been historically a fact. But when you look, I was just looking through the gamut uh, yesterday, just randomly at, at YouTube uh, videos for, for I'm programming a concert. And I came across Joshua Henry singing uh, soliloquy from Carousel. And I thought to myself, wow, that is a black man singing his face off in a, in a, in a piece that is traditionally shunned upon for African-American singers. Um, and he's leading production. So for me, it's like, oh, okay. This is something that we should talk about. And I think the piece talks about it without having to talk about it. It just is. And, and if, the, if an audience member or a board member or someone that's producing can see that from that perspective through those eyes with that bird's eye lens of, oh, wow, there actually is an immense amount of talent in every other culture, then we can continue to move the needle forward. We started to do that, unfortunately, through the tragedies of 2020 and through the pandemic. But with those changes, we cannot let up. And I think being, having this opportunity is so special, especially in Canada, um, where you may not see that, even though there are tropes and, and, and uh, performances available in this specific time frame, in this specific genre of music. It's so important that we push push the envelope. And I think... I think we have something incredibly special here and, and we're making it, it's historical. It's historical. So I'm just grateful to be a part of it and uh, be a part of the team. I think we're really going to make some noise. Literally. <laughs> Absolutely agreed. New works are so important to acknowledge our present state, acknowledge each other, different cultures, 
and the voices need to be heard. So we can't just rely on the old canon and we need to put more money into creating these new works. And I think it's, it's really great what you guys are doing. And I see the Canadian opera company is somehow involved. Uh, I know the orchestra is playing. Um, I can answer that. Um, yeah, it's a co, it's a co-commission by uh, tapestry opera and obsidian theater. So they're the, the producers that have come, uh, come in from pretty much the beginning to sort of shepherd the piece and, and develop it. Um, and the Canadian Opera Company Orchestra came on as a partner um, uh, and and has sort of provided not only um, a group of, of musicians that are that are used to playing together, but are really used to playing um, opera, which is, a, you know, a unique way of 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 of, um, of playing as an orchestral musician. And so uh, they've come on as a as a partner, as an orchestra um, to support the project. Um, and TO Live has also come on as a as a as a partner in in terms of um, building out this production in terms of what it can be in space and all of those sort of things. So it's been a really it's been a really cool um, it's been a really cool opportunity to see organizations like the COC um, stepping into uh, a place of really pushing forward new new opera and supporting it in the way that they can as an organization. And I think it. I think it's also kind of a model for how this really expensive art form, especially making new opera, can can have a life forward. You know, it's it, it takes the coming together of multiple organizations, um, the sharing of resources, the sharing of you know the risk of putting on new productions, and taking a risk with stories that you know are are not familiar to our stages that we all can agree need to be on our stages, but um, still for some organizations seem like a risk, right? Uh, so, so I think that it's really cool to see this kind of um, active partnership and support from multiple organizations. Yeah. Yeah, we need to stick together. And, and the community is really small, including the international communities. When you're looking at uh, other new productions that have been done, for instance, on the Metropolitan Opera stage, the, the list of co-producing partners is, is, is lengthy for that reason that you just said. Uh, I hope to see more of it. And I love what Tapestry Opera has been doing for years. I mean, they've been real trailblazers in, in getting these, these works fertilized and off the ground and, and bringing them to life. So I hope that our listeners will go and see the production in Toronto and uh, I'm really excited for all of you. 